The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. I will not wear the mask. 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 I will not wear a mask. I will not get the vaccine. I will not get the vaccine. And I will not get the vaccine. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will resist evil. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. I will submit to God. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked chime? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of this I hate the work of those who follow it. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall stand. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will you, triumph in the works of your are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I will defy tyrants. 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 And good day, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com and you'll see two videos at the top of the page there. The one on the left is Bradley's show from Saturday. Uh, that's two hours worth of Bradley Dean. So if you didn't get to see him over the weekend, you can still see that show up until 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern this afternoon, at which time he'll be live in that little square right there. We're also streaming live to uh, Rumble, or excuse me, 
I'm getting ahead of myself. On the right side of the page is where we're streaming now. Click on that, blow up whatever device uh, you're on, and then there's a Rumble icon. You can click on that and join us in the chat on Rumble. We are streaming live to Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Before it's news.com, top of the page, dlive.tv at the Sons of Liberty, and then the variety of small little Facebook pages that I have run there, as well as if you are uh, on, on Twitter, the real Tim Brow, don't add the N on there, put a two in its place, the real Tim Brow two, and we're streaming live on Twitter as well. So uh, you got a number of ways you can catch us, but you can always get us at sonsoflibertymedia.com. Okay? Right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. You get that between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern usually each night. Uh, it goes out a little late in the evening. And then uh, also, while you're there at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, if you agree with our message, you want to keep us out there doing what we're doing, talking about our Christian and constitutional heritage, addressing um, the issues of the United States of America and the world from a biblical worldview, and we're not talking about some God loves you and has a plan for your life. We're going back to what God said about himself, about how he deals with men, and what the remedy of that. And it's always repentance in one area or another. Uh, if you agree with that message and you'd like to keep us out there doing that, there's a donate button at the top of the page. Click on that and make a one-time donation. Or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of liberty. And we really do appreciate you guys very, very much. Without you... We're going to have to cut up our time to do something else in order to come back and do it, and then we're not able to do as much. So thank you very much for your support of the ministry here at Sons of Liberty. Also, our store is available, and this week we're highlighting the Price T-shirts. Now, these are one of our more popular T-shirts. Uh, it's normally a donation of $20. This week only you can get 10% off when you're using the promo code PRICE. Okay. And that's through Saturday Night Midnight. But on the front, it says, what is the price of your freedom? Ask a veteran. On the back, it says, what is the price of your redemption? Ask the Son of God. And again, these are these are pretty popular t-shirts that we have. So if you want to pick up one of those, you want to save 10% uh, now through Saturday Night at Midnight, use the promo code PRICE in our store, and you'll have that. And the link will be in the archive later this morning. Now, before I bring on our guest, I want, you know, there's a lot of talk. We we I thought I had clarified the the German dude from from the other week, you know, is going social media September twenty fourth. I played you the the entire con the context there, and you can watch the whole thing if you want to put it in the English uh, closed caption. You can do that. Uh, SonsLibertyMedia dot com. You can put in September twenty fourth, and you can find that. And it seems like the guy just misspoke. He was talking about February twenty fourth. I don't know why he said September twenty fourth. I know some people have said there's all kinds of predictive programming stuff and movies and books and all this other stuff. And that may be, but that guy was not talking about that, okay? It's clear he wasn't talking about that. So if you if you want to check that out, you can. But there's been a lot of talk about something happening with banks this week, and or speculation, I should say. So there's been a, a big push for these CBDCs, these uh, digital currencies coming out of the Fed. I want you to hear, it's a, it's a short little clip, and then we're going to get to our guest, because we got a lot to cover today. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, I want you to hear how he responds to his colleagues wanting to push these digital currencies. It's, it's really great what he says. Listen. I'm pretty skeptical. I keep asking anybody, anybody at the Fed or outside of the Fed to explain to me what problem this is solving. A digital, I can send anybody in this room $5 with Venmo right now. <laughs> Right? No, seriously. So what is it that a CBDC could do that Venmo can't do? And all I get is a bunch of hand-waving. I get a bunch, well, maybe it's better for financial inclusion. Maybe it's better for cross-border remittances. Maybe. Is there any evidence that it is? And you know, they say, well, what about China? China's doing it. 
Well, I can see why China would do it. If they want to monitor every one of your transactions, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. If you want to impose negative interest rates, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. And if you want to directly tax customer accounts, you could do that with the central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. So I get why China would be interested. Why would the American people be for that? Well, the American people aren't for it. <laughs> That's the problem. It's it's the banksters that are for it. And so this is why this needs to be fought against. Uh, it really does. And one of the biggest ways you can do that is by using cash. And Catherine Austin Fitz has been really promoting that. She went from a cash Friday to trying to use cash as much as you can. Uh, that way they're not printing. They're not printing more. Because uh, every time you're using those digital transactions, even though there may be funds, they're printing money to back that stuff. And uh, so then that devalues a dollar, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we're not here for economics this morning, <laughs> unfortunately. But what we are here for is I want to take some of you back who may know about these guys that we're going to talk about and remind you of, I say, the giants on whose shoulders we stand. I mean, we had Douglas Bond on a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about America's original founding fathers, specifically the Scottish Covenanters. And we talked a lot about those guys. And we made brief mention of some of these men. But today we're going to be talking about men like John Knox, John Calvin, and John Bunyan. And uh, Douglas, uh, on a very short notice, said he would come on this morning. And I appreciate that very much. And it's my privilege to welcome back to the Sons of Liberty, Douglas Bond. Good morning, man. Good morning. Good to good to be with you again, Tim. Yeah, great to see you. And uh, boy, you're you're lively this morning. Uh, <laughs> most people that come on, boy, they're a little groggy when they get up and everything. But you're you're just full of life, and I appreciate your time to come on and to speak to our audience. Uh, I feel like we have a, a real kindred spirit, uh, and I think a lot of that is due to your influence in in mine and my family's life through your books. So I appreciate you coming on. Now, here's one of the things I want to do, Doug. I, Let's just dive right into this. So let's pick up what probably in a lot of people's minds, especially when you get into, I don't know, independent fundamental Baptists and you get into some of these people who just have a hatred for John Calvin. And John Calvin, again, had this tremendous impact on the Scottish Covenanters we talked about and a great impact on our, a lot of our founding fathers. And I'm not talking about the founding fathers of 1776. I'm talking about the ones who came here and began to colonize and things of that nature. Let's let's dive into this guy. And one of the things I want to do, let's just bring up the most controversial thing if we can. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we can we can surround that with other parts of his life. But one of the most controversial things for John Calvin is a guy by the name of Michael Servetus. Mm-hmm. Can you can you set a little background for that for people and then explain why those who want to vilify and demonize John Calvin are wrong and why they're wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you, so glad you went there. There, he he is. I am sure, uh, the most um, unfairly maligned figure in history. Um, you know, we use the adjective church history, and I I'm not a big fan of that adjective because it's all church history. You know, um, and um, uh, all history is is uh, the history of God's redemption of His people. And uh, every every detail, uh, every nanosecond of history, every there there isn't a there isn't a blade of grass, if I can make that allusion, uh, that isn't his. And um, amen. So um, you know, I th- I think that th- there's so much that people don't understand about the Michael Servetus episode. Um, if I can put it in the context of uh, sitting in the in the in the uh, 
in the in the parlor of the mansion, the, the presidential mansion of a of a large um, uh, private Methodist um, school. Again, you know, its Methodism was in its past. <laughs> um, uh, one of my sons got a got a free ride to this school, uh, full scholarship, and so that's where he did his undergrad. And <laughs> so, um, you know, here's this liberal Methodist uh, president, and my son mentions as we're uh, chatting with him uh, after graduation, he says, um, you know, my dad writes all kinds of books. He's written a book about John Calvin. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what, what, you bring this up with a Methodist. You know? <laughs> and and um, uh, his, um, his wife jumps in and says, oh, the guy was a monster. I mean, he was so, so, and she's groping around for the word. She said, Calvinistic, you know, <laughs> like it was a swear word. And um, I said, well, well you would tell me what you mean by that. And both of them brought up what you just brought up. Well, he was, he was burning people at the stake in Geneva all the time. I said, was he? I said, um, let, let me fill you in just a little bit on that. And I said, number one, uh, Michael Servais was wanted by the Roman Catholics uh, just as much. Uh, I would say, no, he was wanted long before he was wanted in Geneva. And he was wanted with great vehemence by the Roman Catholics. He was non-Trinitarian. He was, he was, a, he was a, an avowed heretic for the Catholics as well as for, um, uh, for the Reformed there in Geneva. And um, uh, Calvin had some history with him. In fact, uh, Michael Servetus had stood him up in Paris at a scheduled uh, debate uh, a number of years before this, um, before this episode in, in uh, Geneva. But, but I think the most, uh, the most salient parts of that story that are completely not known is, number one, um, there was only one person burned at the stake in Calvin's 23 years in Geneva. That's not burning people at the stake all the time by any means. Uh, number two, um, burning at the stake for heresy uh, was not unique to Calvin or to Geneva. Every city in Europe burned people uh, at the stake who met who crossed a, a certain threshold, which Michael Servetus had long before crossed. He was, he was more like a 19th century Unitarian, probably, um, than, uh, than anything else, and very vocal about it. Uh, he had been uh, asked to leave Geneva when he showed up, and he had aspirations to usurp Calvin's role as really the lead pastor of the church in uh, Geneva. And... Um, um, and, and what's what's very important to say is that um, Calvin was not at this particular time was not even a citizen of the city of Geneva, the city state of Geneva. He wasn't a citizen until several years after the burning of Michael Servetus at the stake. The decision to burn Michael Servetus at the stake was not Calvin's. He had no say in it. The city council uh, ruled. Uh, to burn Michael Servetus at the stake. Uh, and if, you know, the, 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 the records are all there. The civil records are all there. Calvin actually petitioned the civil, um, uh, the city council, the civil arm of government, uh, not to burn him at the stake, but to use the more humane civil execution, which was execution by beheading with a sword. And that was true in Geneva and throughout cities in, in Europe. And it was considered to be a much more 
humane way to die. The, the, theoretically, if the guy has a good aim, it's a, it's a one-stroke uh, deal, and uh, and you know, uh, there's not this prolonged agony of burning, which is supposed to be a foretaste of hell, right? Uh, on display uh, on in public execution, uh, which is. You know, let's be honest. That's that's where my that was appropriate for Michael Servetus in the sense that Michael Servetus uh, denied the deity of Jesus Christ, and there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, uh, the only Savior of sinners. And um, but uh, Calvin appealed to them; they denied Calvin's appeal, and, and uh, Calvin then went into Michael Servetus's uh, prison cell. And pled with him to repent and to turn from the error of his way. Yeah, and that turn. sounds like a monster, doesn't it? It sounds like a terrible monster. Yeah, to to turn and repent of his sin, to trust alone in the merits of Jesus Christ and not in his own good works, and uh, and to flee to Christ. Um, this is this is not, and this is the actual historical record. Um, this, this is this is what happened. There it was one person burned in 23 years. Calvin had nothing to do with that burning. Calvin did um, uh, debate with uh, de- with uh, Servetus and found him to be heretical. But the, but but he was a heretic in the big spectrum of of uh, you know what was called the Christian umbrella then. You know Roman Catholicism found him so as well. So it, it's it's a completely unfair. Uh, thing to do and uh, and to say about Calvin, it doesn't. And, and the the interesting thing is that the president of this uh, of this institution, which I won't name, but the president of this institution says, "Wait," he says, "I'm an academic." He said, um, "I'm supposed to be a scholar." He said, "Why haven't I ever heard this before?" And I said, "Well, part of it is your alignments." <laughs> I said, "You know, your your theological alignments would would be very happy to to." Um, to muffle the truth about mm. John Calvin, and I'm a Presbyterian, and and we we look we look to him. We stand on his shoulders. We look to him as one of our great founding fathers, not only of uh, Presbyterianism, but uh, but also of of our country and of our constitutional um, form of government. Well, and reclaiming reclaiming of the gospel. I mean, when you're talking about Rome being involved in some of these, just. I don't know any other way to say it. They're they're legalized murders is what they're what they were doing at the time. The tyranny that was in Europe, oh, I, we can't even imagine what that was like. And Calvin, Knox, um, you know Zwingli, Luther, all of these guys were that was happening all around them, and sure. they were those guys because they brought the true gospel. Because you had guys like Wycliffe and others who were bringing the the scriptures in the common tongue. Um, who were being attacked? It was it was through their efforts, through their sufferings, if you will, that yeah. the the truth was rediscovered. wasn't discovered. It was rediscovered because it had always been there, right. and th- that was what broke the ba- the back of the tyranny of Rome. By the way, let me put this in here, and we'll get a little bit more out of Calvin. This is the book you've written, uh, The Betrayal, a novel on John Calvin. And again, Douglas writes a lot of uh, historical novels. He uses uh, sometimes fictitious people in them. And and the stories there to carry to convey the idea of what went on with certain people and things of this nature. One of the, this is a great thing if you've got if you're homeschooling, I, I highly recommend it to read to your kids. This book right here is right on par with the Crown and Covenant series that I spoke about in our in our first show that we did together, Doug. And I just you come to the end of this, and it's like coming to the end of the Crown and Covenant series. I my family will tell you I was in tears. 
Because the gist is this guy who had been this mortal enemy of Calvin was somehow, you know, he's secretly going around as his servant and all this, just waiting for the chance to pounce on him. And I'm not going to spoil it for people, but the ending (laughs) is tremendously, how shall I say it, glorious uh, Mm -hmm. as to what happens to this man. But you really see the heart of Calvin in that. Uh, mm-hmm. People think when they see his picture and they've heard all these stories that he's this mean, nasty, pointy nose, you know, just oh, in your oh, face. Like oh, the devil. Yeah. yeah and, it, and that's the furthest thing from him. In fact, he was a great biblical expositor. I think when he left Geneva, he left off at one place in Deuteronomy and he came back years later, picked right up in there in the spot that he left off of. That's, that's how much him. he was yeah. dedicated to being in the context of the Word of God. But what else do we have? As America, as those who live in the United States of America, what do we have to thank Calvin for? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we see this thing with Michael Servetus, and people could look yeah. that up. But what do we have to really be thankful to? Okay, Michael Servetus doesn't, we don't see anything that happens with us in that. What do we have to thank him for? What was his impact and influence on our founding fathers? Yeah, yeah that's such an important question. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, it, it applies to everybody. Um, it applies to uh, Armenians, uh, semi-Pelagians, you know, uh, you know, you know, free will Baptists, the works, you know, they, they have a huge debt that they don't even know that they owe to uh, John, John Calvin, the unbeliever, you know, the, the pagan has a great debt uh, to owe to John Calvin, uh, Geneva, you know, Geneva became the refugee center back to your point, Tim, of, of the, the tyranny, the oppression. The, um, uh, the the keeping ignorant of of that the Roman Catholic Church was doing to the masses of people. Um, they they used Latin. Uh, Latin's a great language. Nothing wrong with Latin, but they used Latin as a club, uh, to, as an elitist club, so that only the the initiates who could understand Latin could understand anything. I mean, you went into a worship service, um, and you saw the back of the priest. You know, behind this screen, this elaborate screen, and the whole service was conducted in a language you didn't understand. Um, anybody who goes to church, any anybody who's a Christian and goes to church, has a great debt to owe Calvin because Calvin Calvin broke the back of that, and um, and and there were others. He had other allies. He had Wycliffe. He had Tyndale. He had you know a number of other allies who were saying we need the scriptures in the language. Of the people, uh, preaching, lecto continual preaching. You mentioned Calvin when he was uh, as he's. We're talking like a, a kid in his twenties, and he was uh, God gifted him in remarkable ways as a scholar, as, as someone who was a clear thinker, who didn't get all befuddled by the uh, you know by all of the uh, the mucus of the cultural. Um, uh, garbage going on around him. Uh, he could cut to the chase. His mind was clear. He could, even when he was converted, he'd already memorized vast portions of Scripture. He had memorized a vast passages from the early church fathers. Um, he knew exactly where they were. There's this wonderful debate in, in Lausanne that takes place in 1536. Calvin had only been in Geneva a few months, uh, two months, in fact. And, um, and, and when it was finally Calvin's call to talk, he gets up and for two and a half hours he recites copiously from the early church fathers, you know Pierre de Ray and 
<laughs> and and for William Farrell, you know, they're sitting there trying to pass him books and stuff, and he's waving them off. He doesn't need the books. He's memorizes. He's got he had all of this, and he could he had a great search engine, so he could put it together, and he knew exactly what he was looking for, and he could make his point, and then he could support the point with layers upon layers upon layers of evidence. You know, uh, you know, for a guy like me who's taught writing and taught essay writing as, as a component of that, is this is this is a model of how to do this. You 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 know the evidence to support the truth statement that you're making, and you know why it supports it, and you can explain to your listener why this uh, supports it. Which again is what a good preacher does, uh, looking at the biblical text. And and uh, back to your point about uh, him him you know being he's kicked out of Geneva for a time. They weren't quite ready for Calvin, um, and um, and then he's called back. They're just begging him to come back three and a half years later. And Calvin comes back, and he picks up in the pulpit there at Saint-Pierre, uh, uh, right at the same text that he'd been at before. He didn't rail at them for being so stupid as to get rid of him, which they were. Uh, and they admitted that. That's why they wanted him back. You know, they needed Calvin's preaching. But that lecto-continual preaching, uh, that is a great rediscovery. It needs to be rediscovered today. Uh, you know, we have all these, uh, you know, really warm, fuzzy talks, uh, you know, uh, that are not sermons are not proclamations of truth from god's word um this is christ's pulpit and when god uh, ordains a man calls a man uh, and then equips a man to step into that pulpit and preach um they are standing in the place of christ and it's a holy calling and it's a calling that has authority uh because not 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 because of the man but because of christ uh, the son of god um and the only savior of sinners in whose pulpit that man has Placed himself. Well, Calvin understood that. He went into the pulpit trembling. Um, we'll get to Knox. Knox would tremble in fear as he stepped into the pulpit because he knew whose pulpit it was and he knew what he was doing. That's right. And so the lecto continual preaching was rediscovered, which said, you know, all, you know, solo scriptura, whole, you know, the, the Bible alone is where we learn that it is by, that we are desperately lost sinners and that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, to the glory of God alone, that we are saved. And, and so, so Calvin um, be, believed in tota scriptura too, the whole Bible. We're not just going to take my favorite texts and preach them over and over again. You know, that some, some have observed that really um, most preachers really only have one or two sermons. And you know, it doesn't matter where, where they're saying they are in their biblical text, they're preaching the same sermon. You know? uh, and really good preachers maybe have six or eight sermons. You know? uh, well, Calvin had, by the, by the time he was finished there, uh, one of his students at the academy had developed shorthand. Um, and um, he could actually sit and listen. The student could sit and listen to Calvin because Calvin went to the pulpit. He didn't have any three by five cards. He didn't have notes on his phone. None of that. He went into the pulpit with a, a Geneva, I mean, not a Geneva Bible, but but with a, because uh, that was in English, but but with a uh, French Bible that his cousin had translated from uh, Pierre uh, Olivetan had, had translated. Calvin had written the preface. He's, Calvin's often credited with with the translation of that um, uh, Bible into French, authoritative from from Greek and Hebrew. But that's all he went into the pulpit with. Now, he spent a lot of time pre preparing, and he preached a lot of sermons during the week. But he went into the pulpit, and he wanted to frame his words for his people, for the flock, as he looked at them and engaged with them uh, from from that pulpit. Um, if you have a photographic memory, it's a little easier to go to the pulpit with just your Bible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've never been able to pull that off. But um, me neither. Uh, 
but uh, you know, so he would preach uh, uh, verse by verse, phrase by phrase through God's word. And uh, these we have these four thousand sermons uh, because of this uh, French shorthand that was developed solely so that uh, that this that, that this young man could take down uh, common sermons and record them. So bless bless that young man, and it's the prompting of the Spirit of God to do that, so that we have uh, all, all those sermons. They didn't have any kind of audio recording in those days. Calvin's not on sermon audio, you know. Um, people reading Calvin are on sermon. audio. But um, so much legacy, and, and maybe if I could say this in, in, in the final, it became the refugee center against all of the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, people were fleeing to Geneva for freedom. And why was there freedom in Geneva? Well, there was freedom because, you know, they were standing fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. Uh, the gospel was on display in Geneva. And we were just reading this on our way to church yesterday, G.I. Williamson's commentary on the Westminster um, um, Shorter Catechism, and uh, we were on uh, we were on the uh, the Fourth Commandment, um, and you know all this stuff, Tim. Your your listeners don't all know it. I I pray to God that they will. Uh, and and he's pointing out that actually the Fourth Commandment, which is you know remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is a creation mandate. It's good for all people to. Uh, have that Sabbath every, every one day of the Sabbath. Sure. God, God established that for everybody, for the good of everybody, for loving our neighbors. Uh, it's a good thing to hold up. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep, keep it holy. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Sabbath day is the Lord's day. Uh, rose from the dead. Um, anyway, the, the point in Geneva was that the laws, the civil laws in Geneva, were informed by the moral law by God's moral law. That's right. Which is good for everybody. You know, we, we have this whole lie that's been given that sin is fun and it's pleasure and it's it's good, you know. Well, it and, is for a season, right? The Bible says it yeah, is yeah, for a yeah. season. That's right, right, right. You get the short buds of that pleasure. Uh, but afterwards, you get the the, the the grinding, the gnashing of teeth, the weeping and wailing for all eternity. Sin isn't good for our neighbors. Loving our neighbors is calling them to repent to turn from sin. And and it's also having where we can take taking stands and and standing for truth, uh civil uh, that affects our civil laws because because laws that are informed by sin aren't good for our neighbors. Um they, they destroy our neighbors. And uh, part of loving our neighbor is holding truth up to them. That's right. Uh, we need to do it in a loving way. And we're not talking about a theological sledgehammer here um we we should have the deepest heart of compassion for that person who's 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 in the darkness uh who is in the grip of the devil and and who can't see clearly who can't think clearly who doesn't know uh doesn't have a renewed mind um and and so you know we want civil laws well, that's what geneva was geneva had laws that increasingly reflected um, the the truth of the of the word of God and how that affects the way we live and how, the, how that affects the way we organize our society and and, and so here in the, in this moment that we're in with um, you know all of the intersectionality and all third wave feminism and all of these crushingly destroying ideas and they are they destroy they do not they do not build up that's, that's right. why one of the reasons why the progressive liberals are so angry they have no sense of humor and they're so angry. It destroys. It, it yeah. is. Um, that's horrible. 
Geneva came to be called in its own day a haven for women. Hmm. You know, it was a haven for women. Why was that? Well, it had laws that protected, protected them. Yeah. women from exploitation. That's right. It had laws against prostitution. And where did, the, where did those come from? They came from Scripture. They came from the Word of God. They came from, you know, the, the Seventh Commandment yeah. and all of its implications thereof. You know, it, it came there to say that we're to honor women. We're to hold them in high esteem. We're to treat, you know, treat our wives with love and reverence and, and, and devotion. I like to call my wife my goddess. She doesn't like that. She says, wait, you know, that's, I said, there are no goddesses. That's not, that's not distorting the word of God. You know? um, and uh, um, anyway, you know, I mean, I think we're, that's how we're supposed to treat our wives. And Calvin modeled that with his own wife, fairly short marriage. She died complications from their only child that also died. And uh, Idolette, um, uh, he 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 modeled all of these things and 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 taught men to to treat their wife as 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 a precious gift from God. Well, that's why Geneva was a haven for women, and the laws in Geneva reflected that. Some people think, oh, how oppressive, you know, to have laws against prostitution. You think, you know, human trafficking. So often in those days, it, it wasn't the woman's choice. It was often foisted upon her by tyrannical, oppressive um, men who uh, who abused those women. And Calvin said, "It's not going to happen on my watch." Yeah. Not in and, and he preached the truth. He preached the gospel. He knew that the way to change Geneva wasn't just to go in there and change its civil laws. You know, this came organically. Uh, he knew that the way to change. The society he lived in was to preach the gospel of Jesus that's Christ. That's right. That's right. So that people could stand fast in the freedom where Christ has made us free. That's the only freedom. But that freedom has implications, and it goes into into uh, into all spheres of society. Well, Doug, let's 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 bring that in because there's a lot of people in in these United States who would say, "Well, wait a minute. Um, you know, we preach the gospel, and their gospel is." God loves you and has a plan, wonderful plan for your life. It's you know forty days of purpose and yeah, all this all this kind of stuff. And they're like, well, we don't need the law. Now they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because they want murderers to be locked up or whatever sure. whatever their yeah. justice is that they want to do. Uh, they want thieves to be caught and and done whatever they want to do. But of course, none of it ends up being justice the way God lays out how justice should be. That's right. But yeah. <clears throat> so I'm thankful they at least see that, even though they're sort of double minded and and how they're presenting that. But once yeah. a person is born again, one of the things they want to do is they want to see sin stop in their life and they want to see it stop in the society. Uh, it's a little easier to see it in the society than it is to look internally, and I think this is where you know the Puritans had some mm-hmm. some bit of balance. Some of them got a little more on the introspection, I think, than they should have. But but there was an introspection to to make sure that that they had gotten the plank out of their own eye, as Jesus said, so that they mm-hmm. could help their brother with the specs. Um, and, and Calvin was one of those guys faithfully teaching the law of God. I mean, he was bringing that to bear. The law slays us. Uh, it cuts us down, and then it is the Spirit of God who gives us mercy, and He regenerates us, Ephesians 2. He He quickens us and makes us alive unto Him. And then what do we want to do? We want to fulfill the law. I was quoting in the chat here uh, where Paul says, we're to owe no man nothing except to love one another, and love is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Because the law is demonstrating how our love is towards God, the first four of the table of the commandments, and then the last six is our love for one, for our fellow man. So it's it's like it's a slayer, and then it becomes the example to us as to what we're supposed to be. And that's only because 
Christ has empowered us by his spirit to do that. Now, look, mm-hmm. we we can't keep Doug on for like two hours because he's got a meeting to go to at eight. And so I told him we're going to hold over a little bit. So you guys who like overtime, we're going to have some of that. If you want to catch that, you go to sonslibertymedia.com. What about John Knox? So we've got John Calvin. We got John Knox, and we're going to have John Bunyan. So we got the Triple J's going on here. John Knox, let's talk about this guy. He's in a different country. He's a guy, uh, they call him the Thunder. And uh, he was a guy who, he he was a finger pointer. There's no doubt about that. This guy was a finger pointer. And he was feared by those in civil authority. Tell us a little bit about John Knox. Yeah, yeah. Well, John Knox was uh, just a remarkable individual, and I think we we tend to think that uh, God calls the equipped, but actually it's the other way around. God e- equips those he calls. And, and and Knox was not wired as this thundering Scot, as he was known. Uh, I think people just think, well, he just had a really powerful personality, and, you know, he could, he, you know, he could... Uh, yell and scream in the pulpit, bust pulpits, which he did. So at least he did one pulpit. Uh, there's an eyewitness account who was taking notes who <laughs> described it happening in St. Andrews, Scotland. But um, <clears throat> he got pretty worked up in, uh, as he was uh, preaching. And there was a lot to get worked up about. I mean, there was no uh, country that, that uh, in, in, and we're talking 16th century here, but, but, but Scotland led the world in um, in, in, in uh, Church corruption, ecclesiological corruption. I mean, it's you know the, the you know the, the bishop of St Andrews was an absolute philanderer. Uh, uh, you know they believe that he probably fathered more children than Leo X, the Pope under Luther had fathered, um, which, you know, which is which is quite a quite a few. And um, you know he was just a horrible horrible human being, and um, very arbitrary in the use of his power. Uh, luxury loving, um, your your classic uh, uh, cleric who who was you know overweight and and uh, a drunkard. You know, I mean, he, he, a drunkard and a philanderer. That was uh, Cardinal Beaton. But um, but yeah, he's a cardinal too. You know, the guys who vote for the next pope. You know, and, and the pool out of which. Uh, the College uh, of Cardinals, out of which popes are chosen. This, this is who this guy was. And, but, but Scotland was particularly corrupt. I don't know if it had to do with probably the clans and some of these, just so much local, you know, gangs, basically. You know, uh, 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 authority and abuses of that authority happening uh, in, in the civil realm. And then you combine that with uh, just incredible abuses uh, from uh, French clergy, that's it was largely French-informed clergy, and then you have at the top in in Scotland, you have um, a queen regent, Mary Guise. Uh, she was a princess of in the in the line of of the French uh, crown, and um, she's the mother of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. So here, where there's a pattern, here we had a pattern of Johns, you know, John Calvin, John John Knox, and and, and John Bunyan. And, and when John uh, Knox would uh, sit down in, in, in uh, uh, four days to, uh, to write the Scots Confession in 1560 and present it to the Scottish Parliament, um, uh, he had there were there were five Johns in the room, a uh, little Saint Saint Margaret's uh, chapel there, um, just down the you know in the shadow of uh, Edinburgh Castle. And the, so here, you know, would you pass me the you know pass me the goose quill, John? You know, well, which John? You know, there's five Johns, but uh, so there's a lot of John Johns common name in those days but um but there were a lot of marys so here's mary geese here's mary queen of scots uh she comes back to scotland as a young 18 year old widow 
uh, who'd been living the high life, luxury life in the, the Saint and uh, Amboise in the uh, in the uh, royal court, uh, the, the castles that line the Loire River uh, in France, central France. Um, she was loving that life and uh, carrying on with whoever she could want to carry on with, and she gets called back to France. From France to Scotland, and who's who's basically the, on everybody's lips in Scotland? Well, it's John Knox, and um, so she comes back in tears and not not a happy clam, and has to deal with uh, John Knox. And who supports John Knox? Well, the whole Parliament. They had a Parliament in Scotland uh, that uh, met in the the Great Hall of Edinburgh Castle, the other end of the Royal Mile. That's where. That's where the people were. That's that's the parliament, and in so far as there was that representation at the, in that day, and at the other end of the royal mile, you have Holyrood Palace, and that's where uh, Mary Geese and uh, uh, Mary Queen of Scots was. And at the same time, just to get this in in the, the larger perspective, you have Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, Mary the First, is reigning for five years down in England. And, and burning people at the stake. She burned almost 300 people at the stake at that. You know, where, where are the people lining up for that? You know, to, to, remember, to remember that when Calvin, they, they credit with doing that, and Calvin did none of that. Anyway, uh, I get worked up about that. My blood pressure, you know, you're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so many lies out there, you know, and uh, what was it? Theodore Beza said after Calvin's death, you know, he had served as, as uh, basically associate pastor with, uh, with Calvin for 16 years. And he said, you know, that this, there, was, there, there wasn't anybody more godly in my experience. And uh, he, he, his example was um, uh, more easily slandered than imitated by those around him. See, he foresaw that Calvin was going to be Slandered. You know, we 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 come after people who are. Um, we look for warts. We we this guy's too. We got to find something against this guy. And they, and they and they have the centuries. How I think a lot of that has to do too with um, uh, Enlightenment historians. You know, the, what the history that we have is is colored by Enlightenment historians who want to uh, tear down guys like Calvin and Knox and well. Um, but Knox, um, Knox was was someone who went from being very timid when he was first called on to preach uh, there at the castle in St. Andrews. He fled from the room in tears. He was terrified of stepping into Christ's pulpit. And this begins a pattern for Knox. Knox went into the pulpit. Literally, his hands would be shaking. He was trembling in fear, praying, calling on God to speak through him and so that his, his words uh, were to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, and never to the honor and glory of John Knox, uh, or of, uh, and that he never spoke error, and that his words would never lead to idolatry. And this was a this was a key word to understand Knox and to understand the passion of Knox. Why Knox got so worked up in that pulpit? Why Knox would stand before tyrants? And would decry their sins and call them to repentance to the point where Mary Queen of Scots is said to have fought, broken into tears, listening to Knox personally there at Hollywood Palace when, when in one of the several uh, audiences with the Queen that Knox had. He, he, this is, you know, at, at his death, there was the, the regent at the time, uh, uh, the Earl of Moray, said, Here lies a man who neither feared nor flattered any flesh. Not. You know, I'd love for that to be said about me. 
you know, he neither neither feared nor flattered any flesh. Uh, I hope that, that you know that, that we could also say, and here's a man who loved the you know the the, <laughs> the oppressed, who loved sinners, who loved and cared for sinners, and that was Knox. I mean, Knox, the you know, Knox, you he knew when to use the power voice. He knew when to pound on the pulpit and when to and 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 he, and he used it very very much. And that was with tyrants. That was with oppressors. Knox would unleash on them, and you know he could he could just pour it on. We only have two written sermons of Knox. Only two survive. We have allusions to others have written and, and talked about what they heard Knox preach. Knox in his uh, history of the Reformation in Scotland, two volumes of marvelous story, told firsthand. Um, uh, mentioned his biblical text and mentioned, you know, sort of his takeaways and all that. So we have allusions to lots of other sermons, but we only have two complete sermons, which made which made writing the thunder and and the mighty weakness of John Knox, uh, the, my Ligonier uh, nonfiction biography, made those a little bit tougher to uh, sure. Right, but with Calvin, the tough part was that there was just so much material. You know, I mean, you got four thousand sermons. Plus all of his commentaries on almost all the books of the Bible and everything else. You know, Knox had like five volumes. Um, uh, com- his complete works would be in like five volumes. Whereas Calvin's would be, you know, you're, you know, across my living room here where I'm sitting. Um, uh, you know, he just was voluminous in, in, in his output. Um, but Knox, it really was a man who, who feared, no, he didn't fear or flatter any flesh. And he spoke the truth. He spoke it in love to his tenderly to his flock. Oh, his letters, and you, you find out when I create historical fiction, you know, I do. I often will create uh, either a historical character we know very little about who could be in the proximity of Knox or Calvin or Bunyan or whomever, um, or I or I create uh, as hopefully as authentically as possible with the era a character who a figure who can uh, you know who can be that lens uh, too to the hero that I want to uh, placard um, there. But, um, um, you know, Knox understood in his letters, you get just this most tender, and this is what a guy like me who writes historical fiction, I'm looking at the letters, because the letters tell you much more of the heart of the of the man. Calvin's letters to Bullinger, for example, we learn so much more about the like Calvin's health, his ill health, and what he suffered, because he he like he only he only would say he wouldn't say any of that from the pulpit or in his commentaries or anything like that. But but with a really close friend like Henry Bullinger, who was uh, the uh, Zwingli's successor there in Zurich, um, would you know he would he would speak more honestly and candidly about his suffering. And, and Henry Bollinger cared about that. So he asked and he pressed in about, how are you feeling? How can I pray for you? I know you're sick all the time. You know, how do you do what you're doing? You know, he's well, you see the, yeah, you, you see the heart of the man there instead of just what's on display when he's in the pulpit. You're seeing behind the scenes you know how he thinks, how he deals with the people there in his congregation. Let me let me just address this. You know, I've got a I've got a brother in the in the chat that we're talking about, and you know we're talking about loving and appreciating these men. Well, here's a, let me give a couple of examples of why I think this is so important. This is not the Roman you know veneration of Calvin or Knox. They're men. That's all they are. 
That's right. And yeah. they're sinners who've been saved by the grace of God. They've been called saints by the Lord Jesus. That's that's his decoration. I'm not looking for a pope to do that or anybody else. Yeah, we need a calendar. It's yeah. like the disciples. Had the disciples not been faithful in going out and discipling the nations and bearing witness, the gospel would have died with them. I mean, that's that was what he commanded them to do, and that was the means God used to do it. We yeah. read, <clears throat> I, want, I want to point this out, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, now what's he saying therefore for? Well, because of what came in chapter 11, and he lists all these people who are dead, okay? They've, they're dead and gone, but God used them as the means to demonstrate what true faith was. Samson, Noah, uh, Abraham, David. It, the list goes on in Hebrews 11, and he says, Therefore, since seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. You and I, Doug, we're not here because we just picked up a Bible one day and we we read the Gospels. No, we're here because men were faithful down through the ages to carry on that witness. Now, that's not to bring glory to them. It's just to say they were faithful, were very appreciative for their witness. They were faithful to Christ. And Christ used the means of men not only to break the back of the tyranny of Rome, but if we look at it in this context, we may mention of this, to give us English translations that we could read in the first place, because the fact of the matter is nobody knew Latin except the priests in that day, and some of them didn't even know it very well, and yep. the, the people didn't know. So we, we do have a, a gratitude to God for these men. It's right. Again, it's not a worship. We're not asking them to intervene for us. There's only one Savior. There's only one mediator, one potentate. That's Jesus Christ. That's it. He's yep. the high priest. But he does use the means, and I think when people understand the truth about these men, that they're not so maligned, then they start to see, okay, wait a minute, I see how these things progress, and I am what I am by the grace of God, no question about it, but he used means. We know certain things, and we may not have read their writings. We may not have even known who they were. I certainly didn't know, but I gained through the Scripture, and then I gained through understanding those men who had been influenced by some of these guys that we're talking about, and it helped me understand exactly what the Scripture was saying even better. So I kind of wanted to address that, that we don't just throw people off. It's like, boy, I would hope that my kids would love and appreciate me long after I'm dead and gone. I would hope that would be the case, just like you would hope that for your kid, your children and your grandchildren, that they would remember, hey, you know, they were the ones who taught me. They were the ones who lived that example before me, and yeah. now I can live it. It's not to put you on a pedestal. It's not to say, hey, you're, you're equal with God, but that mm -hmm. you, were, you were the means by which that gospel was conveyed and by which they saw it in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think it's really important to say that because there is so much distortion, and I know that people, <clears throat> um, you know, Roman Catholics will take shots, and I, and I, lead, I lead church history tours. And, and sometimes people will say, well, we're going on a pilgrimage. I said, no, we're not going on a pilgrimage. You know, pilgrimage is a means of grace that the Catholics constructed out of whole cloth. It's not in the Bible. We don't go to certain places to venerate certain people and <clears throat> thereby get grace for ourselves. Absolutely not. Um, I take people to Geneva in this next, in 2023, I'll be taking people from Rome to Geneva, you know, and it's a, it's a theological tour as well as a, a geographical uh, tour. Um, and, uh, but, but that's not because we venerate them as um, uh, autonomous human beings and, and all. And I think one of the key things, you know, we have celebrity pastors and things like that today, and, and there's a lot of problems with, with that. Of course. Um, and I think the key is these people that we hold so dear and that we 
And we look up to him. We're supposed to. Uh, I mean, Paul tells us to do that. Imitate, you know, imitate. That's our, right. Our Give honor to whom honor is due. Yeah. I mean, 28 times in the New Testament tells us to imitate others. And more times it's telling us, 17 times, it tells us to imitate other people. And 11 times it tells us directly, imitate Jesus. I mean, I think there's something in that, you know, and that's it. Most of us need somebody to be that sort of that model and that one who points us to Jesus in as, between us. As Paul you know, said, he said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, and the thing is that we can, we can hold up somebody and we have criteria to say, is this person worthy for me to hold before myself and my kids and all that? We can read their, their works and all that. And we know from there. But the key thing is they weren't pointing. They didn't want attention to themselves. That's right. They weren't standing up there saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, in effect. And, and a celebrity preacher, or celebrity in general, we're a celebrity culture, the celebrities, they, they live their lives. Their whole, the whole pattern of their life is to get people to look at them and to celebrate them and essentially to worship them. And uh, it's a vast difference. Um, and it's one of the things that we need to, to this is one of the reasons why we need these great heroes of faith, because they do model for us how to do great things for God and give God the glory for it, period. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, we're coming close to the end of the show, and I'm going to give you a chance to kind of plug your website and, and your books and things. But one of the things is, you know, when we when we think about that, and people ask me all the time, have you heard this guy? Have you heard that? I'm, look, I don't, I was out of the Christian rock star scene, I don't know, decades ago. Uh, because I learned uh, as Bradley and I have talked about, and I mentioned to him, I said, you know, while my all my friends were going like my dad, you know, that, oh, I'm called to preach and this, that, and the other, and they were asking for a chance to get in the pulpit, I just sat back and I'm like, well, if God wants me to, to teach or to preach, I'm going to get that opportunity sooner or later. And I did get them. But I, was, I would go into the pulpit sweating and just yeah. scared to yeah. death. I mean, I really yes, was. Yeah. Because, yeah. because I was afraid, I, I was really afraid of, saying something that would be dishonoring to God or to his word or distort it. And I was very young. I was very ignorant of a lot of things, but I was learning. And uh, I think that's and one of the things that Bradley told me he said, when he heard my testimony. He said, you know, he said, that's how it works. He said, those who say they're called and they're out in front and all, he says, you can be sure they're not called of God. It's the guy who doesn't want to go in there. That's right. the one that's called of God. And yeah, but, but he'll go anyway. Uh, okay. So I, I yeah. think that's I think that's a good word that you've got. The people aren't looking for aggrandizement for themselves. Um, right. You know, some of our friends in the chat say some really complimentary things towards me sometimes. And guys, I'm I'm grateful for that. But you know, the fact of the matter is, if the Lord is not working through it, if He's not the one being glorified instead right. of me. Well, then that's a real problem. Uh, but we got about uh, 20 seconds here. Tell people, and we're going to carry on. We're going to pick up John Bunyan on the other side. So people in Red State Talk Radio, you can pick us up there. Tell people about your website and where they can find out more about you. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's lots of stuff there. There's, uh, oh, I think my, my 32nd book is coming out this year. Um, the, uh, so there's lots of books, lots of resources there. And I think with uh, maybe homeschool listeners that you might have, hmm. uh, Tim, um, I have, there's, there's, hundreds of pages of study guides available in PDF uh, at bondbooks.net uh, that go along with these with these books. Okay. So that's that, that can be a huge help to families. So for example, the Crown and Covenant Trilogy is over 120 pages of study guide materials that go with those. Uh, 
yeah. you know, for, uh, primary source readings and, and lots of directed studies and graphical stuff and everything too. You know, okay. uh, so those are, those are things that are available there. I I lead um, uh, these church history tours, and we have some places spots open in some forthcoming tours in 2023. I also do creative writing master classes, um, and thinking about doing that here in Carolina. Uh, All right. <laughs> But uh, my Oxford, my next Oxford Creative Writing Master Class, right there where it happened, um, is uh, in in uh, April, April eighth through the fifteenth. And right now, I only have maybe one or two spots open in that. So, uh, folks are interested in, you know, really having a, a literary tour of Middle England, and they're written, they, maybe they love Lewis and Tolkien, and uh, there's a lot of that, and uh, so many other greats that were centered there in Oxford. Uh, get with me right away and uh, get your spot on that. We're doing something special this year. We're we're actually going to be uh, our accommodation is going to be on two canal boats hmm. right, right there in Oxford. So we had a, we're going to have some fun with that. But um, um, we'll actually be using the canal boats on the canals too. So it's going to be fun. But um, anyway, lots of stuff going on there. And uh, I invite you to go and subscribe to bondbooks.net. That's good because, you know, uh, newsletter materials coming out, you'll, you'll get them in your inbox and, and all too. So. Okay. All right. Now I dropped just so people understand. I dropped uh, while we were talking about John Knox. I dropped your your uh, historical novel on John Knox, The Thunder, a novel of John Knox. So you guys, that's in your chat. Uh, those of those of you who are there, I'll have these in the archive too. So, in fact, what we'll do is we'll not only link up uh, Doug's website, but we'll also link up his Amazon site where you can get all his books too. Either one, you can pick them up wherever you want to do. Uh, but you know, Doug. <clears throat> the the thing is, I, I think I say probably the best for last. Um, you you got Calvin, you got Knox. These are well educated men, um, mm-hmm. well spoken, well written, well read. All these kinds of mm-hmm. things. And then you've got this guy, this tinker. Okay, um, yeah, it's uh, just a great story. It's yeah, you you got incredible. John John Bunyan, yeah. who God you know used to pin in a, from a prison away from his family. The second best-selling book of all time, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, has influenced a lot of people. This goes back to what I was reading out of Hebrews. Uh, you know, look at look at the example that was set. And again, I, I want to make distinction because the Roman Catholics would take somebody uh, that would be in their camp. They obviously wouldn't take John Bunyan for this, but they would take somebody right. in their camp and they would they would have adoration for them. They would make a statue for them. They would make a saint for them. They would pray to that person saying, would you pray to Mary? Would you have her pray to Christ? We don't do any of that stuff. We see the example. We see God's work in their life. And we're appreciative that one, God worked in their life. And two, that they were obedient to the call of God and what they were doing. And so that's, that's, I think I want to clarify that so that people don't think, oh, you, you're just making an idol. No, that's not the case at all. Because those men had, those men have sins. And I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I see some people who do that in the reform camp. They will make idols out of these men. They can find yeah. no fault in them, and I'm like, wait a minute. As soon as you yeah. go there and you find no disagreements with, with some of these guys, I think you have made an idol out of them. And I can tell you in both cases, I can see their sin come through too, and what little bit you can see. You can see their fallen nature that will express itself at times. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's – I want people to understand that. They are men. They're not God. Uh, yeah. And yet, they're the means that God uses. So, you've got a book out here. I just want to plug this one right quick. The Hobgoblins, a novel of John Bunyan. And uh, tell us, why is John Bunyan so uh, important to the Christian church? What was his influence? And if I might, 
there was something else I had on my mind with John Bunyan. Uh, it, oh, I know what it was. John Owen, another very learned scholar. Uh, oh. Great work called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. If you if you guys haven't read that, I'll try to get the link and I'll pop it in here in just a little bit oh, good. Yeah. Uh, after the other one. But John Bunyan, well-educated, uh, was asked, why do you go and listen to John Bunyan? He's a tinker. And he's basically saying, I would get, I forget the exact quote, but I'd give up all my education, all my learnedness, if I could yeah. preach and draw the people like this tinker. I mean, it, this right. guy had a tremendous impact. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, God, <clears throat> it's God's way. I mean, you, you look at Genesis right at the gate, and um, <clears throat> you've got Cain and Abel. You've got the older brother, you've got the younger brother. And the, the patterns laid down in the opening pages of the Bible. God, God delights to take the unlikely, you know, to take the, you know, in, in the ancient Near, Near Eastern world, it, you know, the, the elder brother was everything. I mean, he, he inherited everything, and, you know, he was the big shot. Um, but not in God's economy. And uh, God, God raises up the most unlikely um, people uh, so often. Um, and, um, you know, smelly fishermen. They were among Jesus, uh, Jesus' followers, as well as, you know, some who, who were well-educated and all, too. But, um, but so here, here it is, you know. I mean, uh, Calvin was probably one of the foremost Renaissance scholars, period. I mean, he, he had, he had uh, a claim for uh, some of his translation and commentary on Seneca that he had done as a 20-year-old there at the University of Paris um, that was being widely read in scholarly circles throughout the European world. Um, he was um, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, it's as if God says, you know, but for all the rest of you ordinary people, you know, like me, you know, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you who, how I do this, how this all works. I'm going to raise up some younger brothers and, and, you know, the Peter Waldos, you know, street vendor there in, in Lyon. And, uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to raise him up. And start the guy starts translating scripture and so forth. Another whole story there, but um, but yeah, I'm going to take Bunyan. You know, Bunyan was this, you know, really foul blasphemer kid. You know, the the the, na the neighborhood cut up that all the parents would say, you know, moms would say, don't play with John Bunyan. He's he's a bad kid, and he was. He was a blasphemer, and and he was from poverty. I mean, he he was he was uh, you know. He didn't have, he had a job his, in his family that was not a respectable job. Uh, it was, it was, you know, he wasn't a welder, you know, you know, building big stuff, you know, things like that. He was a tinker. I mean, even the name sounds so diminutive, you know. <laughs> what, what he did, he went around repairing people's pots and maybe doing some odd jobs, to, you know, repairing some leaded, leaded stuff in the window. He could, he could solder, basically. And, um, but the deal was he was itinerant, and in, 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 in God's providence, you see this, this perfect combination of a humble man uh, with an incredibly alive imagination. I mean, this, this guy had an awake imagination. When I, on my uh, Oxford Creative Writing Masterclass, we go to Elstow. We go to Elstow Abbey, this, this 11th century, almost 1,000-year-old um, abbey uh, that became the parish church uh, in John Bunyan's day. And um, uh, where he would play pranks and ring the bells at the wrong time with the wrong message in the bells, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, <clears throat> but um, but it was it was it was not a sophisticated part of England. You know, I mean, Bunyan had 
basic grammar school education, uh, very little formal education, certainly no Oxford or Cambridge for him. And like you say, you know, John Owen, who becomes the rector of Oxford during the interregnum, um, you know, who's, uh, who's preaching at St. Mary's University Church and, you know, some of his great sermons are heard there and all that. He's, he's in the upper echelons. He has audiences with the king, you know, and, uh, uh, but not, bon, not Bunyan. Bunyan, but but Bunyan does have an audience, and it's all the it's all the neighbors. Yeah, yeah. That goes around to him. This portable anvil they found it uh, some decades ago in a garbage heap in uh, in Bedford, um, and it had J B and sixteen oh eight on it. Well, Bunyan wasn't born until twenty sixteen twenty eight. Dies in sixteen eighty eight. But um, but his, he was following in his father's footsteps. You know that's what you did in those days. His dad was a tinker. He was a tinker, and uh, so he's packing this heavy burden on his shoulder around, and he dropped this anvil. Had a point on the end of it. Dropped this portable anvil in someone's uh, yard, and he would sit down on his portable stool, pull out his hammers, and tap tap away. And he was a talker. You know, talkative in, in Bunyan's magisterial Pilgrim's Progress, first published 1678, never out of print since, translated into hundreds and hundreds of different languages, uh, more editions sold than any other book except the English Bible. Uh, J.K. Rowling, step aside. You had to write seven books. That's right. That's right. To, uh, to you know, the Guardian had this big deal. Oh, he's more, she's more famous than John Bunyan now because. Come on, we all can do basic math. You know, that's seven books. Bunyan wrote at least nine books. You know, um, you know, she had to write seven uh, books to to get to the to the numbers. And are those going to be around? You know, um, hundreds of years from now, my my guess is I doubt it. Uh, at least certainly not in in the way and to the extent and comprehensive way that um, the Pilgrim's Progress is. And I would love to see a resurgence of Pilgrim's Progress. Part of the reason for writing Hobgoblins, uh, my uh, historical fiction on Bunyan, is to, to to try and kind of wheedle into the, you know, into the hearts of readers so that they want to read Pilgrim's Progress. Uncut, you know, unedited, I think you got to get it the way Bunyan wrote it. He wrote it in first draft. You know, he didn't have the luxury of, uh, of editing and having a a great copy editor for a wife like I do. Um, you know, he didn't have that luxury. Um, can you can you tap in just a little bit, Doug, into how he got in the position where he was writing that? Yeah, because it's so relevant to Sons of Liberty. I mean, um, Bunyan, we talked about the Crown and Covenant trilogy. Take that same history that's happening, 17th century history, um, 80 years of, of, of tyranny and oppression, uh, and... and uh, 18,000 Covenanters die, most of them at the noose, um, you know, for, for standing for the crown rights of the Redeemer and the Kirk. Uh, that was the way they said it in Scotland. At the same time, Hobgoblins pairs really well with the Crown of Covenant trilogy because it's happening at the exact same time. Um, you know, the, what's happening to English Puritans or to a nonconformist like Bunyan, who's called to preach, you know, where's he preaching? Where's his pulpit? Well, his pulpit's his anvil. Wherever he goes, he's preaching. And he used such uh, such earthy and, and 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 imaginative illustrations to capture the attention of children and and uh, un, unlearned uh, listeners. Um, absolutely magnificent gifts uh, that he was given, and um, and and a humble man. I mean, you know, he he was had a humble calling. Uh, he was from a humble station in the, the stratum of society. Those uh, who economically, he was at the bottom of the barrel. You know, he was the working poor, and um, 
um, uh, you know, Bunyan um, was called to preach by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And he knew that. And so he preached. And he didn't just preach at his anvil. People listened to him like, like John Owen. And John Owen would have him come and preach in his own pulpit. Uh, because here's a man with such great giftedness. He wanted his people, most of whom were, call, you know, university educated, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, people, um, they, you know, professors from Cambridge, which is closer than Oxford to Elstow and Bedford, would, would come, they'd walk long distances to come and listen to this guy. They're just like, who is this guy? You know, how is he, how is he able to um, be, I mean, in the sense, they could tell he had been with Jesus, kind of like the disciples, huh? <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, I mean, people said this about Jesus. You know, how does this guy know so much stuff? You know, and and uh, able to you know, knows the scriptures so well and all that. I mean, he wasn't in the he didn't go to the best schools. What's the deal here? Well, that was Bunyan. Um, and, but Bunyan believed his call to preach was from the Son of God, from Jesus, and it was. And uh, so he preached. And so what happened was uh, in the in the restoration of the monarchy, you know, Bunyan, Bunyan becomes a Christian uh, follower of Jesus Christ, fights in the Civil War, English Civil War, in all likelihood. There's several chapters about that in Hobgoblins. But you know, and, uh, but you know, so he 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 gets his traction as a Christian and his early training from uh, John Gifford, Holy Mister Gifford, he calls him in his Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his spiritual autobiography. Um, and um, but the 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 you know the, this whole experiment in parliamentary rule is about to crumble, and um, uh, uh, Charles the Second. We just now have a Charles the Third. That would have been the last name I would have ever taken. <laughs> Charles the First and Charles the Second were really really bad kids in my judgment. But um, uh, Charles the Second, who converts to Roman Catholicism on his, on his deathbed. Um, <clears throat> was uh, a really monstrous philanderer um, uh, king. And when he is restored to the throne in 1660, uh, he is coming with a heavy hand. Um, he was uh, so much duplicity on his part with the Covenanters. That's a whole other story. But he tried to get their support by signing the National Covenant, even but it was all a lie. He had his fingers crossed behind him. Well, he comes back <clears throat> and heads are rolling. Heads are rolling in Scotland. Uh, the um, you know, he he's uh, he's going to get all these people that didn't support uh, his uh, uh, his uh, you know his uh, monarchy and his view of the divine right of kings and all of that. And so he comes back and he lays down his gauntlet that uh, in order to preach, you have to be vetted by the crown and you have to sign the oath and that oath of allegiance to the crown as the head of the church. And just as his um, uh, his spiritual brethren to the north, the Covenanters, uh, Bunyan's like, nah, not going to do that. You know, uh, I, my 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 call to preach is um, from Jesus, not from you know, it's from King Jesus, not from King Charles. That's right. And so he, he just keeps preaching. He doesn't make a big deal about it. You know, he just keeps preaching, and um, well, word gets out, and <clears throat> Bunyan is arrested preaching in a barn in Bedford. And um, in in 1660, and is hauled away to trial, and um, much of much of his arrest and trial was illegal, actually too. And uh, his wife was intrepid. This is his second wife. His first wife had died, um, and she was an intrepid supporter of her husband, and went went to bat to try and 
you know, went to the magistrate to try and get uh, Bunyan freed. Uh, Bunyan's in the county jail, uh, just a few blocks away from the 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 you know the Bunyan home, and um, um, he ends up being there for twelve years. Um, and all he had to do, and some people urged him to do it. All he had to do was. Um, um, There we go. Gotta get the keys. <laughs> um, uh, all he had to do was swear allegiance to the crown and sign the oath. And uh, he wasn't about to do that. And um, people urged him. They said, you know, you could get out of here tomorrow if you just sign the oath. Come on. Think about it. You'd have all the freedom to preach and everything. And he says, my conscience, I can't do it. Because King Jesus called me to preach, not King Chuck. And uh, so I, I just... I just really honor a guy who can take that kind of stand at such great cost. He's, you know, his first daughter was blind and his wife, they'd only been married a short time really. And, and uh, she's the mother, she's stepmother to Bunyan's children um, and to blind Mary. And she's an intrepid woman. And just her story is worth a book in itself. Um, to caring and loving for these children uh, remarkably and uh, Bunyan said that not being there to care for his blind Mary was like tearing raw flesh yeah. off his back. This wasn't that, you know, he, he, you know he, he was a really tender-hearted man and a loving father and husband. And he wanted to be with his wife and kids. Um, but God's call on his life was that he was to suffer in prison for 12 years. The, 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 the guard really liked Bunyan, the, the prison the jailer, and actually I make the jailer into this childhood friend that Bunyan mentions, uh, Harry, um, and would uh, let him out sometimes on the promise that Bunyan would come back. So he'd kind of disguise himself and he'd go out. And so some people think that there were multiple imprisonments of Bunyan because, wait, it's, it's, a, it's, it's historical fact. He was preaching over here in so-and-so, you know, at so-and-so's church, whatever, or in so-and-so's barn. Uh, you know, and that's during the twelve years that he was in prison. So, so it was just, so it was just, it was one imprisonment, but God gave favor to the jailer to let yeah. him out. Kind of like Daniel's, uh, the the exactly. eunuch over there would let him eat what they wanted to eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph too. You know. Yeah, jail. yeah. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and there's there's a lot in that first to unpack too. That if you live a godly life, that, that that you will have an impact even on ungodly people sometimes who will see that um, that would see its authenticity and honor you even if they're not believers you know and um yeah so bunyan was but, but while he's there is what he's making uh, lace it's a lace making part of england and his wife's bringing in materials and then she'd sell the lace because there was no safety net you know how, how can he support his family there he can't tinker while he's in prison uh he trained his son as the oldest son to do that and so part of the income to support the family was coming from his son his teenage son stepping up and doing the rounds uh tinkering Doug, let me. Can I hit on that just a second? I don't want to interrupt you too much there, but that right there, boy, could we learn something in our society from that? Because our society says, well, no, if dad's out of the picture, then government's got to come in, whether it's through, you know, government funded schools to train you and do this other. When, when we as fathers, and I confess, might, you know, there are things, sometimes the ideas hit me and I go, how can I even begin to do that? I, nobody showed me how to do it. I, some things yeah. I'm able to do, some things I'm not quite able to do. But yeah. boy, that's a statement right there. Here's a man that trained his son yeah. in a trade that he could, I mean, it wasn't going to make him 
Mundo money, but it was a trade by which he could provide for himself instead of saying, hey, go get a job over here working for somebody else. You can contribute to to yourself and to the family uh, by inputting into his children. Yeah, no, it is. It's a remarkable part of the story, really. It's uh, that um, that that could be the case. And, um, you know, but Bunyan also began writing. And while he was in prison, and his wife, you know, you know, parchment and and ink. Now there were other people too that knew and loved Bunyan, knew his preaching, knew and loved him, and and that would help support him and get, you know, get parchment and get ink and goose quills and things to him. It's said that Bunyan wrote nine books uh, while he was in prison. Now that's probably uh, stretching it a little bit because he actually only started Pilgrim's Progress while he was in there, and he had to learn his craft like all writers do. <laughs> um, you know, so his early, some of his early works, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, you know, he, was, he had an allegorical bent to his mind, and so he, and he had a great imagination. And so there, these books you could see that he's on his way, you know, but it's when he, it's when he hits on Pilgrim's Progress that he, he's found his voice, and he really hits his stride, and... Um, <clears throat> Um, finishes that after he is out of prison. And uh, John Owen is actually instrumental in getting the book published. He has it published by the same publisher that was a printer that was printing John Owen's works, his sermons and commentaries and things. Um, And um, uh, had just this real honor of, of, of John Bunyan, as he should. So much where to go. I don't know. I don't know where to go. I mean, I, I love the guy so much, and they're so his sermons are so great. So, yeah, well, well, that no, that's exactly. This is kind of what I wanted to do. I want to give you know. I think we've given about twenty minutes or so to each of these men, and again, I want to stress to people: I don't want people to idolize these men. We're not called yeah. to do that. Right. But but I think one of the things, especially for Calvin, was to get the truth out about who he was because he's been so maligned. Right. And you know the Bible talks about bearing a false witness. That's sinful. Yeah. And so those history, men's born a false witness. Yeah. yeah. And so those history. men who are out there, uh, many of them are preachers in the pulpit who have maligned Calvin, either because you're taught wrong or you didn't do your homework and find out what really went on there. You're sinning right. and you need to repent. I mean, there's no there's no excuse for not knowing in this day and age uh, the truth about the scenario with Servetus and with what went on in Geneva. But Absolutely these, not. but these yeah. other men, you know, it's it's like, and I, I hope Salt doesn't take it the wrong way because I, when I was saying that, everybody knows me. I'm not one that's going to just beat you down. That's not the way I work. But what I want people to see is we didn't just get here by falling out of the sky, reading our Bible, and that's what happened. God, God uses means, and He's used means all through history. Whether in the Old Testament, when we read Paul, and He, he talks about it in First Corinthians, I think it's chapter ten. He said, what happened to the Israelites is an example for us. You better be wary that you don't become idolaters, that you don't become adulterers and adulteresses, and you leave the living God and you suffer the things that they do. Look to them and see the example. And I think the same thing happens you know, when we, when we have godly men and women who have been faithful throughout history, whether we knew them or not. Uh, I think many people have said uh, you know, most of the godly men that they have known have been influenced by dead godly men, <laughs> uh, yeah, not right. not by the living. And, and they see their life, their example, their writings, and all these others that spur us on to love and good works. And the Bible tells us to, to be in that. So they're right in line with what Scripture says. They're not above Scripture. Uh, they're not equal with God. They're men just like we are. And yet we see examples 
uh, that we're to follow. As I said before, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. One of the things I was going to do, and I'm going to tap this one in there. I didn't get the thing because it just left my mind as soon as I said it. This is uh, John Owen's great work. If you guys haven't read this, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, uh, do, yourself a, yeah, do yourself a favor and boy, you really want to you want to go beyond just Jesus died for our sins kind of stuff, and you want you want to go deep into that as to what that is. Read this piece here. It, it yeah. really it, it is really something uh, to, to 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 cherish. Now, Doug, I know you, we're going to let you go so you can get you know go to the bathroom and do whatever you got to do for your your thing at eight o'clock. And yeah. I appreciate you coming on short, short notice. I could sit here and listen to you all day. I really could. I love history when it has meaning. If it's beyond yeah. names and dates and it has meaning, and you can see why certain things happened the way they did and how they right. even impact us today, that's very interesting, very edifying. And, and it, I think it builds up the body uh, of Christ and understanding how God has worked through men of the past. So I'm going to give you the last word here. If you want to kind of give a a synopsis of all the stuff we talked to, maybe a word of exhortation to the audience. I want to turn that to you, and then if you'll finish out by just pointing people to where they can find out more about you, that'd be great. Okay. We uh, glitched out there for a minute, but I think I know what you want. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Again, Tim, I enjoyed it very, very much, and uh, what great topics. Calvin, Knox, Onion, uh, and so much more to say about each of them. Um, and to appreciate, I think a lifelong study could be made of each of those men to, to great benefit. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of fun part of what, what I get to do is, you know, when I'm preparing to write a, a historical fiction uh, work, I get to immerse myself in the writings of these great, great people who've gone before. And it, and it always, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I write about people that I've known and that have had an influence on me already. But, oh my goodness, uh, the deeper you go, uh, you know, the more profound it is, and it's it's just absolutely marvelous. So, um, encourage people to you know to uh, they want to. I think historical fiction is one of the one of the, when it's carefully drawn and when it's uh, authentically drawn is it's one of the great ways to uh, to get connected to to uh, figures in church history. And again, study guides, uh, you know, especially with um, you know the. the beginning of school and homeschool and things there's lots of material there uh, at bombbooks.net um, at the at the store and um, so um, uh, check those things out and um, and uh, think of consider uh, going on uh, the Oxford trip I know there's aspiring writers out there I get emails from them almost every day and uh, just had uh, two or three this last week and and um, <clears throat> uh, this uh, I think that uh, I think that this would be a really good way to uh, launch into um, into uh, writing in a deeper way. But. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Uh, Doug, thank you for, for being with us this morning and sharing your knowledge and the encouragement and things. Uh, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people, they, they've really appreciated what you had to say. Hang on, and I'll say goodbye to you off air. Before we leave, I meant to do this at the first. I just wanted to share this with you guys, simply because we had him on the show. Uh, back in June, we had John O'Looney, who is the um, uh, the undertaker, the funeral home director over there in the U.K., who's been really sounding the alarm as to what he's been seeing from those who've had taken the convid shot. And then we had Jeff Wyatt. He's the guy in the middle picture you see here. And Jeff, uh, I think he was like a race car driver and stuff, but he really had come out and begun to speak out on a lot of things. Kate called me after the show on Saturday, and Jeff had stepped out of his car on the Isle of Man and just fell over dead. Um, 
And so I wanted to share that with you. Please keep Jeff's family in your prayers. I mean, he was really being a voice over there in England against the tyranny that's going on there. And now he's gone. I have It doesn't destroy my faith in God that he has other mouths that will speak. But uh, his family really needs our prayers. So remember Jeff Wyatt's family and your prayers. And uh, we'll probably have a little bit more on that on Saturday when Kate comes on. But uh, it was a sort of a shocking thing. He was about my age. I think he was in his early 50s. So, um, you know, be in prayer for his family. Keep them in your prayers. And then catch Bradley at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, sonsoflibertymedia.com. And then tomorrow, we're going to have a Holocaust survivor, and we're going to have Scott Sharda back on. You remember he lost his, his Down syndrome daughter, Grace, uh, to protocols, 19 years old, to protocols in the hospital and knows they wanted to murder his daughter and had targeted her because of her disabilities. They're both going to be on tomorrow. We're going to do the interview today, so it'll be pre-recorded. But don't miss that tomorrow, 6 a.m. Lord willing, we'll talk to you then. See ya.